Appalachia is a place, a culture, a way of life, and a home to a diverse and select few. Farming and agriculture are at the heart of this rugged rural land. WEHC is pleased to introduce a new program to our lineup, Living Appalachia, a show dedicated to exploring and answering your questions about all aspects of agrarian life. Here now is your host for Living Appalachia, Brendan Blevins. So uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia and all over the country. For those of you who don't know, uh, my parents were military, but uh, my dad did grow up back here. And at the moment, I currently uh, help run my great-grandfather's farm. Um, as far as I can trace it, I have, I'm have i a fifth or sixth generation farmer, um, mostly in this region. Um, and as far as everything goes, we have had everything from tobacco, uh, corn for cattle, and cattle uh, on the land back there. Um, it's about an 80-acre farm, uh, about 15 minutes from 81. Uh, so it's a, it's a really nice place. It's right at the foot of Mount Rogers, which is the highest mountain in Virginia. Um, and it's just an absolutely beautiful area. Uh, so when I got the opportunity to move back here to go to school and uh, take care of that, I jumped on it. Um, I'm a really outdoorsy person, and I just love love being back here. Now, the farm itself um, is about 80 acres, and at the moment has Texas longhorns on it, um, which are just beautiful animals. They'll eat everything, too, whereas your normal beef cow will only eat grass and hay and you know the real tasty things. These Texas Longhorns will just go out and eat every single thing in that pasture that they can get. I've seen them wrap their tongue around some briars and just pull it off and eat that. Um, so Texas Longhorns are one of the better cattle, in my opinion, in this area um, to raise. And the other really cool thing about them is um, the steaks you get from a Texas Longhorn is just beautiful. They're amazing looking. You know, they're marbled like you wouldn't believe. Uh, in my personal opinion, I think they're better than the Black Angus steaks. Uh, so that's that's one of the big reasons we have those there. And then uh, just that they eat everything, you know. Uh, I describe them as kind of like a goat. If you've ever been around goats, they uh, will eat everything you put in front of them. Um, getting back to the farm, though, it was started by my great-great-grandfather after he came back from World War II. Um, and when it first started, it was it was quite a bit smaller than it was, uh, or than it is today. Um, and over the years, he worked through and built that up. So uh, he, he started out with uh, tobacco, like a lot of people in this region, um, that's why I was so happy to have on uh, Tater Miller uh, two weeks ago to talk about tobacco because, you know, back here that's the tradition. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people have made their living off tobacco. Um, but he he did tobacco. My grandmother um, did tobacco there, and uh, I still hear from my dad about the stories he has of working tobacco. Luckily, I was done. They were done with tobacco by the time I came around, because uh, I've heard some heard some stories about that work and 
you know, my generation doesn't really want to do that hard work with farming. Um, and, you know, you can't really blame them. When you can sit on a tractor all day, it's a heck of a lot better than picking tobacco by hand and spraying it and being out there and all that nastiness. Uh, but the farm itself um, is called Vaughnus Farms, and that's after my great-grandfather, uh, Vaughn, um, and my great-grandmother. Her name was uh, Isabel, so we put it together and made Vaughnus Farms. And the really cool thing that uh, we've done lately is we've gone out and uh, registered a brand with the state of Virginia, um, which you can do through their uh, veterinary site there. And, you know, brands have really blown up in this last year or so with Yellowstone. Everyone wants to be out there and play cowboy. Um, but I, I think it was a really good move for the uh, the farm so that uh, we could uh, get a lot done and um, be able to show people uh, kind of what's going on out there uh, with the with the farm and be able to have that. Um, it looks like we have a call-in right now, so I'll go ahead and get them on air if y'all just give me a second. Brendan? Hey, can you hear me? Yep. I think we're going to do a radio interview right now. Oh, are we? <laughs> that's what, that's what Avi said. Yep, you're, uh, you're on the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for... Everyone listening, this is Dr. Davis. He's actually my advisor here, so I probably should play nice with you and not ask you too many tough questions. That's right. No grilling. <laughs> but uh, one really neat thing about Dr. Davis is, um, aren't you the foremost expert on collards in the world? Uh, that, embarrassed to say, I, I, it may be true. It, <laughs> might, it may be true. Yeah. <laughs> So tell us a little bit how you got into collards, because, you know, I know I like collards. My whole family likes collards. So uh, tell us what what made you interested in researching that. Well, I I grew up in a part of North Carolina where collards are really popular. It's more popular than they are here in, in the mountains in Appalachia. Here, people eat all kinds of greens in Appalachia. They eat turnip greens, collard greens, mustard greens, creasy greens. But uh, in eastern North Carolina... Where I'm from, collard greens is the main thing, and it's and it's kind of unusual in that um, it's a part of the South where if anybody has room for a garden, traditionally they've made room to grow a collard patch, and those collards, um, I I just found that fascinating that they're sort of in the winter, in the middle of winter, you're driving through the South in January. And you'd see these uh, gardens. And most, you know, most people in America just think gardens done by September. So this fall collard patch is sort of a kind of a unique cultural thing. And so I wanted to know about it. And my my colleague uh, John Morgan, who taught at Emory and Henry, and he's retired now. John, uh, he's the one who noticed the, this pattern. He said there's sort of a it's sort of a sign of a certain cultural heritage that, that shows up in certain places. And so we wanted to, being geographers, we wanted to know what was going on with the culture and the pattern. And so um, he said, why don't you map this with me? So we started driving and learning, uh, studying the history of collars and driving around and talking to gardeners, collected a lot of information. And the more I learned, the more I found there was stuff to know. 
And I ended up gathering, uh, sticking with it more than John Morgan felt like he, he wanted to put the time in. And I, he and I co-authored a book called Collards. Uh, and but before we get, I jumped ahead there. Before we got to that, I found oh, this is all kind of interesting stuff about collards. So that's it's just a really interesting, unusual plant. And probably you could make the case that it's the most southern of all foods. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, I know that's a big thing in the South eating collards. Yeah, and 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 you know, if you ask, you go ask a person, what's the most, what's the the classic Southern food? Well, they may come up with things like sweet tea and sweet potato pie and um, fried chicken. Those things are widely popular in a lot of places, uh, whereas collards are not generally popular outside the South, except. I mean, it's changed now with foodies and people around the world who trying trying exotic things, you know. But um, collards are sort of special, and they've got a great story on their history. I don't know how much time you want me to go into that, but but um, uh, collards were brought here uh, by British colonists. Uh, but it was not a popular crop in Britain. It was probably ranked 20th in their vegetable rankings of what they wanted to plant, but it was one of the plants. And um, uh, cabbage, for example, was more popular. Uh, but collards are the same species as cabbage. And so uh, there's a, it's interesting that why, why, how's, how is that working? Well, collards is an ancient, ancient food uh, and it was being replaced by cabbage by the 1700s uh, because cabbage can be stored easily. You know, you can take a head of cabbage. People in Appalachia do this. Take a head of cabbage and dig a hole in the ground and come back in the middle of winter, and, and it's sitting in there. You you probably have to line that hole with straw and yeah. such. But but uh, cabbage can be stored. It can be shipped. Uh, even as early as the 1500s, people were putting cabbage into the back of a wagon and driving it long distance. You can't do that with collards. So collards was sort of uh, fading um, because it wasn't competing well with cabbage. But in the 1700s, when settlers from England and Scotland and Ireland came over, uh, they brought collards, but it it wasn't popular. Uh, It was there. But African-Americans were here as slaves, and they um, were adopting the collard. Not because they had it in Africa, but they didn't. But what they did was they appreciated dark leafy greens much more than British people, Irish people. They knew how important dark leafy greens were to your diet. And so they couldn't really find wild dark leafy greens very well in the in the South in the 1700s. So um gardens in the South began to have collards in them in the 1700s, and by 1800, it was widespread, particularly among poor people, because you can get a lot of collard leaves through the winter. You just, this, the plant just, you, cut, you clip them, and you come back a week later, it's got more leaves, you come back a week later, you can keep, you can feed a family from a row of collard plants and get them their good vitamins all winter long, and it, you know, it's, so it's a flavored with pork usually to make a reasonably healthy uh, meal. A lot of people would depend on it. Uh, so so collards has this really cool story that's really a mixture of British and African cultures 
that made that made it an important part of Southern food long, long ago. Oh, uh, so you had said earlier that you uh, went to several different gardens and stuff uh, throughout the South looking for collards. How many different types of collards are there? So, yeah, there. If you if you speak generally, people will speak of a heading collard and a collard. That's one way of dividing them, and there are lots of types within those two categories. But a heading collard is sort of like it looks like it's starting to be a cabbage, um, and people kind of like that because it made it a little easier uh, to to harvest and kind of easier to deal with. Whereas the typical collard, the leaves are all you know, separate and out, splayed outward. And uh, so you could, if you wanted to clip individual leaves off the plant um, and leave the plant, then you'd want that non-heading collard. But the, but of those two types, some are even so heading, they're actually called a cabbage collard. Uh, and so there are types of collard that are really called a cabbage collard. And then we divide them up by color. They're blue, purple, yellow, white. And so these are all really one species. They're not, they're not, you know, separated. Uh, they can all breed. In fact, they're not very stable. But people, as seed savers through history, most people saved their own seed and grew seed, you know, for their next year's use. Those, those um, seed savers, because they were living isolated from one another, they ended up creating varieties that were appropriate to their soil and local climate, say they were in southern Mississippi or in eastern Virginia, there'd be a different soil, a different climate. And so the collards became varieties. They sometimes call that a land race. And so I went out as part of a USDA research grant with a geneticist, and we've collected about 100 different uh, land races or varieties of, of kind of local uh, heirloom collards. And those went in the National Seed Bank so that we have the, the diversity in the genetic uh, pool to breed and protect our long-term uh, garden plants that way. We need that diversity. So, so I should point out that cabbage and collards are not only the same species, but a lot of the cabbage diseases we can protect cabbage from by breeding, crossbreeding them a little bit with collards that are disease resistant. So the collard seed that we collected are being used now in cabbage breeding as well as broccoli breeding. Cabbage and broccoli being two of the most popular vegetables eaten in the world, and they face a lot of diseases. So uh, collards are helping them, helping breeders. So um, you were talking before I asked you that question about uh, kind of the history with um, how it was in the South and uh, the early on people. Has the view of college changed over time? Wow, good question. You should have a radio show. <laughs> so uh, so uh, college, college has kind of had a struggle because it's been associated with poverty. Um, and a lot of people, when they moved away from rural poverty to move to cities, a lot of them would say, I'm not eating collards again because it reminds me of poor you know, conditions as a child. Children often don't like collards, uh, no matter where they live, because it's strong flavor. And 
children are biologically adapted to be resistant to real strong flavors. But but collards um, are also changed in the sense that a lot of people now associate them with African-American culture. So there's a collard festival in California, uh, in East Palo Alto, California, uh, that is a collard festival that celebrates African-American heritage. And um, so... That's it's sort of interesting because parts of the south in parts of the south there's no color associated with with collard, there's no race indication like in eastern North Carolina white and black people eat collards without thinking of it but when I was in uh, Mississippi doing my research to find uh, old people who were still growing and seed saving collards sometimes a, a white person if I asked them if they had collard seed they'd say well no that's that's what black people grow. So there is, there's sometimes a kind of a, I don't know if you could say it's a prejudice, but there's some people who would look at collards and say that's, that's just for black people. And, and um, I, it's sort of, to me, it's a mistake to limit a food, you know, and, and, and it's kind of a, an assumption to say to a person, well, that's the food you eat, you know, because of, that's your color. Uh, so I try to stay away from assumptions like that. On the other hand, uh, African-Americans get credit for having been the culture that preserved this very nutritious dark leafy green. And, and so when I've been to collard festivals, uh, I've just been to the ones held in Aden, North Carolina, um, and then you see a, the, the population of that town is about 50-50, black and white. Um, you know, I, I, the people there aren't talking about race uh they're just enjoying collards and celebrating collards but in other cases you would you would want to support uh, a black culture saying you know this is something we're proud of so it's an interesting story the question of of race and collards so you can find it's referenced in all kinds of things like at one point in one of william faulkner's famous novels um he refers to collards as in a, uh, and uses the n-word uh, he has a character uh, one of his characters refers to collards using the N-word, and uh, and this white fellow who's who's speaking is implying that that's just food for them and not us. So it's been around. That notion's been around for a century or uh, more. That it's associated with uh, black people only. It's, a, it's an interesting story. Um. So with having studied these uh, collards so much, do you have like a favorite variety or like a favorite way to fix them? Because um, I'm sure there's a lot of people listen that want that secret recipe of yours. Wow. You've got well, you, know, you, you know what you're doing here, you know. So, so yeah, I think, I think collards really are best cooked with some pork. Um, and uh, I, I really don't worry too much about the variety of collard. I do try to stay away from older leaves. Lots of people don't mind the kind of the stronger flavor of a big, a really big collard leaf can be, uh, you know, a well over a foot long and, uh, and, uh, and really big. And those, they're just, I like the tenderness of a younger leaf. So when I, when I go to buy collards, I buy them in the store, I kind of look for the fresher, younger leaves. And then I cook them uh, about 45 minutes uh, in water that has uh, the started the water with pork, you put them in a big pot, and you've you've got to chop up your collards while the pork is, and that piece of pork can be uh, can be very fatty, 
use often people buy a cheap block of fat back at the grocery store. You can just buy a small block of fat fat back for a dollar fifty. And you put that in the pot and let that cook. It's not it's not as unhealthy as it sounds, but yes, there's some fat there. Uh and then when the collards when that's cooked for a little bit, like ten minutes, it's really started to break down, you put your collard your chopped collard leaves in there and you cook those for 45 minutes. Now, when it's done and you pull it out, there are different ways of making it good. I tend, and this isn't what everybody does, I tend to put a little butter on my collars. That's not no, that's not what most people do. A lot of Southerners put a little hot sauce on their collars. Others put a little vinegar or even a little sugar. Uh, they might. There are different things you can do, but um, I, I, I just like a little butter on my collars. But pork, some piece of pork is sometimes bacon. Yeah, a lot of people will chop onions to put them in the pot uh, or put some chopped bacon in there to give it that those flavors. And collards do well to have a little salt and pepper on them. So it's a very simple food. There are lots of fancy ways, but so I like it simple. If people want to get involved in, like, growing their own collards in this area, where would you... Uh, send them to uh to uh like yeah. get good seeds or like get yeah. involved yeah so it's not hard to to uh, start seed in an in an egg carton in your house with the, some potting soil and and i would buy the seeds from seed savers um i'm sorry southern exposure southern exposure seed exchange which is in virginia um it's mineral virginia which is sort of near charlottesville and a friend of mine runs that. Her name is Ira. Ira Wallace is a, is a collard queen. She knows uh, how to grow and cook collards better than I do. I know all the others. But, but she's amazing. And um, so the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange has a great several varieties of collards. Some of them are descended from the seeds we found when I was out collecting them. And she, she knows propagates those and you can now you could go buy collard seedlings at some stores garden stores um and that's fine too but you usually can't get real heirloom varieties and i like to promote buying the heirloom varieties because we're preserving those that diversity uh in the agricultural system if we don't our our agriculture our food systems uh, kind of at risk so I'm I'm going to have to go to a meeting. I I I hate to cut the interview off. Is that okay if I leave you now, Brendan? Oh, that's uh that's perfectly all right and uh I'd just like to thank you again for uh, Well, for I'm glad I could on. fill in. I'm glad I could fill in and I and I hope you uh if you get any questions from anybody, uh you just send them my way. Oh, I will and I'm sure I'm sure people will be interested in this and uh you know, maybe one day we can get a longer interview sometime. I would be open to that. <laughs> yes. And and I love your show. And uh, so, all right, well, well, good luck out there, Brendan. All right. Thanks. You have a good day, Dr. Okay. Davis. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Dr. Davis talking about collards and Appalachia. There's a lot of heirloom varieties of uh, collards. Um, and, you know, he can talk for hours about that. It's, it's really neat to talk to him and... Uh, really hear what he has to say because he knows more about the history and 
and just everything that he lets on. Um, he is one of the experts in the world. In fact, when he's advising me sometimes, I'll, uh, I'll talk to him about it because I find it just so interesting. And if I would have known that I was going to be sitting there looking forward to a conversation about collards one day, I probably would have laughed at myself. Um, but we're going to put a underwriter on real quick. Um, while we, uh, while we work on switching over to our next guest. Underwriting for WEHC comes from the Bank of Marion, recently announcing new products and services to make banking better, including a platinum reward credit card with contactless payment. It's tap and go. Earn reward points for every retail purchase, redeemable for merchandise, travel, cash back, and fuel discounts. The Bank of Marion, with 17 hometown community branches throughout the region. Member FDIC. Hey, how's everybody doing today? Um, uh, so getting back to what I was saying about my family's farm um, and, and how... Uh, how I kind of got started into the farming game. Um, with these brands nowadays, it seems like everyone's wanting a brand, you know. Um, it's it's just like the thing to do, um, and I'm all for it. You know, I've heard a lot of people saying, if you're not farming, if you're not ranching, you don't need a brand. But I think, I think it's okay. I think it kind of gives everyone out there a way to have a small piece of uh, farming or ranching, and kind of be like, "This is, this is a piece of uh, of America," you know. And with Yellowstone, everyone wants to have that that dream. It's really a dream uh, to get to farm. I mean, there's days I wake up, you know, just mad at the world, um, and I go stand on the back porch, drink a cup of coffee, and just look at you know, the land that's been in my family for generations. And I think there's people out there that would kill to have that opportunity to to be able to live life like that um, and, and to be able to have a hand in getting people food. You know, I think in today's world, there's not enough emphasis on hardworking people. You know, you've got to have just to eat. Like if you just think about that, just to eat, you have to have a farmer, you have to have truck drivers, you have to have workers at the stores and plants to process everything. For cattle, you have to have workers at slaughterhouses. A lot goes into getting that food, and I think everyone who has a hand in that should be proud of it. And I think with how the uh, the brands are going, I think that's really what uh, what people want is just to be a part of that process. Um. And so that's that's part of the reason we did it. And then part of the reason is is uh, just with with having a, a farm like this, and I call it a farm, but I guess technically it would be called a ranch with how uh, the definition is with that. You know, farming's you growing things, ranching is working livestock, and that's what we do. We work livestock, so I guess technically it's a ranch, but uh, we call it a farm just because that's what it was. It was a tobacco farm. Um, and you know, back then when my great grandparents started it, they were, they were farming and doing everything they could to get by. Like I've said several times on this show, there's no farmer out there making millions. That is one problem I have with Yellowstone. 
you know, I have yet to meet a farmer who's flying around in a helicopter, you know, getting around that way. Um, I have met a lot of farmers that would love to take people to the train station, though. If y'all have watched the show, you definitely know what that, what that is. Um, but, you know, there's just so many different types of farming that uh, that land's been used for. I mean, we still hunt there. Uh, that's a food source. And way back in the day uh, with my great-grandfather, they hunted it. Um, you know, farming is just 99% getting by and 1%, you know, just taking in the land and the beauty of everything. Well, I, I'd say it's more 50-50 with that, but uh, it, it really is just a a big thing with getting by and um, trying, to, trying to do the best you can. Um, here's a message from one of our underwriters. Support for WEHC comes from Snow's Fine Meats and Provisions, a neighborhood butcher shop in downtown Abingdon specializing in locally sourced pasture-raised proteins, handmade deli items, and specialty goods. Open Tuesday through Saturday and online at Snow's Fine Meats, 160 East Main Street, Abingdon. Snow's Fine Meats, bringing the old-fashioned butcher shop experience to your table. I heard the boys of a pork shop, they come on to me and Specializing in keeping patients active with locations in Abingdon, Bristol, Johnson City, and Kingsport, and online at AppalachianOrthopedics.com. Appalachian Orthopedics, specialized care you can trust.
you're listening to Live in Appalachia. Um, we're here to, we're going to talk about some bison farming today um, for the next half hour. Uh, I'm really excited about this topic. You know, um, it's not your average thing back here. So uh, how are you all doing today? Great. How you doing? Good. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your farm. Like, how did that get started? How did you get into the bison business? So, yes. Uh, so, again, my name is uh, Jeff Hillis, and my wife Cheryl and I have um, been involved with our father, my father-in-law, Cheryl's uh, parents, and uh, with the start of the farm back in the early 90s. Um, Cheryl's dad had retired from as a UPS driver up in New York and had moved down to the western North Carolina area um, and had wanted to do something uh, unique. Uh, got into the ranching side of things and started the, the bison herd. Uh, a small group of three females, one male, and then had, uh, you know, he did network and did some research of what it would take to raise them and how to care for them. And it was time uh, as we were, as he was getting settled into the ranching, um, the herd was getting bigger, uh, and he was, it was a hobby for him uh, from a conservation effort perspective. And then uh, around 2013, um, the herd was getting much bigger at that point, and Harold was asking for some some assistance from his, one of the, from his six kids to see if they wanted to go into helping with the, the management of the herd. And Cheryl and I were able to take him up on the opportunity, and we formed the Trinity Bison Ranch, and we started uh, managing the herd more from a, a a business management standpoint compared to a uh, conservative effort. And so uh, Harold was still involved with this day on the day-to-day uh, activities, and he definitely has control of the herd, and we just kind of help along. But we are um, handling the manager, the business side of things from a management perspective, and then all the meat sales and um, rotating the herds and things like that. So um, now the herd is up to 38 and counting, and we've introduced along the line some new genetics um, from getting some new heads up in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia. And um, that's about it right now. That's how we got involved with it. And so we are full swing. We do, since we started the the business aspect of it, we have uh, gone into meat sales with uh, with a local restaurant, as well as we had started a vacation rental business on the property. Uh, we have 65 acres total now that um, we had bought, uh, purchased 47 of those acres with three of Cheryl's brothers and started a vacation rental with cabins and cabooses. And so that is the uh, driving force as far as the income goes. Um, and the guests, when they come and stay on the Bison Ranch uh, with, the, with the rentals, uh, purchase the steaks and uh, a little bit of the extra uh, meat that goes along with that. But... Really, right now, it's um, we're, we're trying to just branch out and get the word done around the area, um, and you know, we basically just keep involved with the community. Um, so, with bison to to be working it, how does it differ from cattle? Because, like, I, with cattle, you know, you can rope them and and work them on horseback. I'm going to go out and assume that you can't rope a bison. That's correct. These guys are. Uh, twice as strong and uh, they're just as fast, but um, they are very temperamental. 
Uh, you know, bison uh, bulls, when they're around the 7- to 10-year mark, they're reaching around 22 to 2,500 pounds. Um, they're twice as fast, twice as big as a typical cow. Um, their hides are much thicker than the, uh, the cows are, and they definitely have a very quick uh, temperament. Uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of the um, tourists that get the gourd out in Yellowstone and, and uh, different uh, areas where there's bulk bison. Um, you know, they, they stand very, the difference is they stand very docile until they're not. Uh, their quick temperament is uh, they will charge at a moment's notice. And a lot of times the only indication you get is their tail will go straight up in the air like an antenna. Uh, they do not paw the ground. They do not snort. They do not give you the typical um, displays that a regular bucking bull would, would uh, see uh, or you see with them. So you got to be very cautious. So we, we tell our guests that um, you know, minimum distance to a bison is 25 yards is the recommended distance. At least you get a little bit of a head start. Bison can sprint up to 30 miles an hour, and they can get there very quickly, under 10 seconds. So, uh, you know, we, when we feed our, our bison, we're in a tractor, um, and, you know, we are very cautious around them. Uh, we respect their, their space, and even if they seem like they are docile at the time, all it takes is one swipe of the head, and they catch you with one of those horns, and they're going to take you for a ride. So uh, with that being said, like these incredibly strong, powerful animals, um, what kind of fencing do you have to do to keep them in? I'm thinking of kind of like Jurassic Park looking stuff. <laughs> Just about, um, yeah, they will walk through a, a standard barbed wire fence, um, even if you have electric running on it. Uh, we use high tensile wire, eight strands, um, and we have, we, we're using three to four inch posts that were 10 to 12 foot on center. We now use uh, five to six inch posts. Uh, and uh, again, there's still the eight strands um, of high tensile wire with tighteners on them. And then uh, we do recommend uh, new ranchers that are starting to run electric on that fence, at least three of the strands of the eight to, to be electrified so that way the, the bison can respect the boundaries. Otherwise, they will push into the fence and try to uh, get to the grass on the other side or test those boundaries. So the upfront cost to uh, bison ranching can be quite extensive. When you're talking just the fencing materials and the corral systems, because the corrals are should be designed so that you can manage the herd safely and effectively, as, uh, and then you have to squeeze them down. So there's a couple different manufacturers that we use to uh, run them through a chute system that will then uh, squeeze them down from the sides so that you can work them, uh, whether it be tagging, vaccinating, or uh, preg testing, or if there's some other reason you have to get a veterinarian in there to, to check them out as far as uh you know veterinary uh stuff with bison do you have to you know vaccinate them for more stuff is there any diseases that uh they could get that cattle could get um is there so, stuff that you got to worry about that like only they can get that's vastly different than cattle but yeah, no, they're they're they do have a very robust immune system. Um, luckily, especially here in the Carolinas, we do not have the uh, harsh winters that they do out west. Um, but they do recommend uh, vaccinations for like pink eye, brucellosis, pneumonias, things like that. Um, now, depending on your uh, ranch size and how many how much pasture you have, 
there is, uh, you know, there's an antiparasitic that you do have to give them on a semi-regular basis uh, because, you know, when they're, they, they eat where they do their business, they have a tendency to pick up intestinal worms. So you do have to provide antiparasitic to keep those uh, worms off of them. But outside of that, they're very uh, low maintenance. And uh, with the difference between, like, out west and here, um, with it being a more mild winter uh, most of the time than out west, does that affect, like, their Like, do they still look like wild bison? Oh, definitely. Um, they, their genetics are there's the genetics. Um, the size is the same as what I've seen, you know, between here uh, and up north. Uh, the bison are the same size. Our, our, we have three breeding bulls that we keep on the property, and they're every every bit of 22 to 2300 pounds. Um, you know, they don't get the exercise because you know we only have them on 30 acres, so it's a little bit smaller blueprint compared to the thousands of acres that the herds have out out west. So they get to run a lot more out there. So they're probably a little bit bigger around the 2500 pound range as far as the bulls go, but um, they still stay fairly big. I mean, they're when you see one, you get up close to it. Uh, we have a viewing platform on our property where folks uh, can uh, get up on that platform and then get right close to the feeding troughs. And so you get an appreciation from a safe distance and, and perspective to um, see the bison. But uh, believe me, they're massive. They will. You don't realize it until you get right up somewhere close to that. Because I know I mentioned earlier 25 yards. That 25-yard recommendation is assuming you have no barriers between you and the animal. Um, for us, it's a little bit better because we have a high tensile fence and then, a, and then the viewing platform above that, the wooden structure that's very heavily built. So it's um, safe for the guests to get that close to them. Now, I have to ask this, and I know that you're probably not wanting people to touch them, but bison just look so soft to me. And I, I assume you've handled them before, you know, that close. So are they soft or is it just like petting a cow? Uh, so yeah, they, their, their heads, they do not like to be uh, touched. So, um, but when we are holding their heads for tagging and, and things like that, that's about the only time we do get to brush up against them or, or test them, but they're about like the cow. Um, they, you know, their hair is a little bit, um, it's not as soft as, uh, as a wool per se, cause it is hair. Um, but it's, I'd say a little more coarser than a, than a standard cow. Okay. Now, it sounds like there's not a ton of, uh, of bison farmers um, or ranchers around. Um, so are y'all like a tight-knit community? Do you guys work with each other? Because um, with bison, I mean, weren't they pretty much decimated in, uh, in North America? Like, how did it go from that to now that, you know, you have enough genetics to um, have a healthy herd? So yeah, we're members of the Eastern Bison Association, and uh, we do a lot, a lot of networking through that organization, um, as well as you know other areas that we get calls all the time. Folks visiting the ranch that are looking to start up uh, their own bison herd, so we connect with them and help them along as well. And that's one thing about the bison community is uh, we are very close knit. Uh, we keep touch with. You know, everybody, and it's because we're not in competition with each other. We have love for the animal as far as the conservation effort goes. Um, but we're not necessarily in competition with each other either, uh, where you might run into that with the beef industry a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we do keep in good contact with other folks. Um, 
you know, one of the things we share with the uh, our guest uh, is, you know, Pines bison that you read about in your books, uh, if you've estimated to be 30 million of these animals running the countryside back in the 1800s. By 1890, they were decimated less than 100. Um, and thanks to conservation efforts out west, uh, starting in California and Colorado areas, um, you know, latest statistics that we found from the National Bison Association as of 2021, there's now 550,000 estimated uh, bison in, in the United States. And so they're no longer on the endangered species list, um, but they are still considered exotic animals. Um, and, you know, it's thanks to conservation or thanks to the smaller ranches like ours that, you know, between 30 and 100, these ranchers the ranches keep popping up, and that keeps helping with the the increasing in the numbers. Um, and you know, what's one thing different from the cows beef industry compared to bison? Bison are on a rut, so you only get one calf a year. They breed starting the uh, late summer, uh, around the late August timeframe, through September into October. And then there's a nine-month gestation, and you get one calf in the spring starting April through June. And then the bison will wait through the summer, and then they'll breed again in the fall, and the cycle continues. Whereas in the beef industry, uh, they try to keep those cows bred within 30 to 60 days after those calves drop. So in a beef industry, you can get two calves in a year every other year, whereas the bison, you don't. So that affects the ability for the numbers to increase uh, it takes a little longer on the bison side of things. So, um, yeah, that's uh, kind of how you how we work things. And uh, as far as, like, you know, what's the lifespan of um, a bison? What's the life, What age do you try to, um, you know, slaughter them at? And, and, like, is there an age where they get to be in, like, more of a problem than they're worth? Like... Because I know, like, you know, sometimes you'll get an old bull um, with ke- with beef and, you know, it, it turns into more of a problem than it is worth. So you kind of got to sure. stretch out of that. So the bull, so the, the average lifespan of the bison is 25 years. Um, and we do, so what we found on our herd is we take our bulls and we only take the bulls to processing because um, the females are are having the calves. But the bulls we take between uh, three and five years of age, we found if you get over seven years of, uh, on, a, on a bull, the meat gets to be a little tough. And so the steaks aren't as tender, uh, not as desirable. They're still good steaks, but they're just a little more tough. So we take ours closer to the five-year uh, mark where the meat is still somewhat tender and you get a little more weight on the animal, so you get some more, you know, more actual meat. Um, the bulls are average. They run about 1,700 pounds, between 15, 1,700 pounds will be taken to processing. Um, now, again, the reason why we're doing it on our side of things is because on a small uh, blueprint, if you get too many males in a herd, they're going to fight, and it's going to be a natural selection process where the bulls may tendency to, to kill each other off, and you're going to lose them to that natural selection process. So what we found is by taking the younger bulls, uh, between that three and five year mark, they uh, by taking the processing, we have, we don't lose any to that uh, natural selection process because we're getting them before they start before they start challenging the older bulls or that hierarchy. Um, so that's 
kind of how we decide on how we're going to take one. But yes, if you get beyond a five to seven year mark, they do get quite cantankerous because they do get very aggressive. Uh, the younger they are, the less aggressive they are because they're still kind of figuring out the pecking order. Uh, but they are still a dangerous animal, even at one to two years of age. Um, like I said, they, all they got to do is clip you with one of those horns and be dangerous. We have a motto on the ranch here, be friendly or be food. <laughs> That's a good one for uh, for livestock in general, I'd say. <laughs> um, you know, as, as far as, uh, you know, selling bison, do you go, like, sell a whole bison at a market or an auction, or do you, you know, get it butchered and then just, you know, sell it from your ranch? We uh, don't really sell our bison outright. We just have a small herd. So typically when we process, we have enough meat to sell to our guests at our vacation rentals. So, you know, they like to stay on a bison ranch and, you know, grill up a hamburger or a steak. And uh, we also just started selling meat to the farmer's market. So between that, that's about all we do. We do have phone calls to sell our bison, but we're just not a big enough herd to sell off a whole bison. For us, it's more profitable to uh, harvest it and then just sell the meat outright than to sell the bison, per se. Um, So, like, if you needed to introduce new genetics to your herd, where where would be the closest place to go buy a bison? Because, you know, thinking about it and getting ready for this interview, uh, I can't remember ever passing a bison ranch on the East Coast. So like, that's where the net, yeah, that's where the networking comes in place with the Easter Bison Association. Uh, there is a uh, you you can get the genetics run uh, by pulling hair uh, off the uh, the animal whenever you do run through that squeeze system. Uh, which we do every November. We have to run the whole herd through the, uh, the squeeze, and uh, especially for the babies, so we can tag them. Uh, we'll, if we wanted to at that point, we could run the pull up a sample of hair and send it off for, for, for analysis and then work with other uh, ranchers if we wanted to. But um, we what we do is we just, from an and out we keep track of where we keep getting our animals from and then if we're looking at some point to rotate out our bulls then because uh, they're the main breeders then we would go somewhere that we have not gone before and um, maybe even towards out west we said we'd be getting most of our our herd here on the east coast uh, between virginia ohio and pennsylvania if we were looking to completely mix up our genetics we would go somewhere outside of that that window the original herd we purchased was actually from Paint, Back, Paint Bank, Virginia, that my parents purchased in the early 90s. If you've familiar, if you ever heard of Paint Bank, uh, it sounds familiar. What uh, what region is that in in Virginia? Uh, I believe it's a mid to southeastern Virginia area, I believe. Okay. Um, now, if you had uh, if you had somebody come to you and just ask for a few pieces of advice on how to start you know, a bison herd of their own, uh, what would you tell them? Make sure they do plenty of research ahead of time as far as uh, the, the handling capabilities uh, what, and pasture management. Uh, that's a big uh, component of ranching in, in any industry, really, uh, being able to 
to know what kind of grasses you have on your, your property and keeping the weed control um, down as best as possible. Um, but then also knowing, you know, the vaccinations, what um, talking, we can get a hold of a local uh, or trusted veterinarian to talk about, you know, do you have somebody that you can call on if something happens? Because, you know, they're animals, they're wild, and things happen. So, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of natural incidents that have occurred that we just had to call somebody. Uh, and so when you're starting up a herd, make sure you do as much research as possible. Talk to ranchers. Um, like I said, we have not run into a bison ranch that has been protective of their process. They've been willing to share their information that they have um, at any time we've called them. So you just call several different uh, ranchers, get involved with the EBA and the National Bison Association if that uh, seems to be a part of that, you know, to get your, to expand your knowledge. Um, and then there's also a bison handler's um, handbook that they have uh, through the National Bison Association that has a plethora of information on uh, getting started. Also, as Jeff mentioned, the Eastern Bison Association hosts a uh, conference every fall. We actually just hosted it last month where I would say almost half of the people that attended were new uh, folks that are just looking to become a rancher and don't even own a bison yet. So I would definitely suggest if they're looking to do that, that would be a great place is to uh, look up the Eastern Bison Association and attend one of their functions because you're spending a weekend with a whole bunch of ranchers that have been doing this for, you know, 10 to 15 years, if not more. So it's a great way to talk and meet other ranchers. Uh, they hold one in March where they actually sell animals at the auction as well. It's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and that's, uh, again, through the Eastern Bison Association, and that will be called the Winter Conference. All right, and uh, we're getting a little short on time here, so I'll have one more question. But if you want to let everyone know how they can get in contact with you guys, uh, um, you can sure. do that, and then I'll ask you one more question. Great. Our website is trinitybisonranch.com. Uh, you can call our numbers are 828-550-0960, and our affiliate website to stay on the ranch and come out and visit is Buffalo Creek Vacations NC.com. We're located in the Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina, just 30 miles west of Asheville. All right. And the, uh, the last question I like to ask on my show every day is uh, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people say that they think, you know, small-scale farming might end in the next generation or two, so like a generation after mine. Um, do, you, do you think there's any merit to that? And uh, what do you think we can do to, you know, keep uh, future generations farming and ranching? Wow, that's a tough question. Now, we haven't heard about the, uh, the, the small ranching going out of business, per se, but... Um because especially with the, we see a lot of interest in folks trying to start uh, their ranching. But, um, you know, it, it, it is a labor of love. Um, you have to be involved with the animals. You have to assess them on an almost daily basis. And that's, you know, part of the feeding process and, you know, seeing how that hurt uh, health on a, any given day. Um, you know, it's one of those things, if you like to be outdoors, you like to make an impact, 
um, with the animals and be part of something bigger than, you know, just going to work every day um, per se. You know, it, there's not a day that, you know, when we go to, when we get up in the morning that we dread going out to do what we got to do. You know, it's, um, we just help folks. It's one of those things where you have to be involved and you have to be, you love being outdoors, love being around animals. And most people, you know, we get a lot of um, guests that come on the, the property that have little kids and, you know, they're enthralled with helping out with feeding, you know, all the other animals that we have on the property because we have, you know, just a little bit of everything. So it's just one of those things where you just, we, we encourage folks, you know, look into it and it's not as cumbersome as you might think it is. Another thing I was going to add, which we really didn't touch on, is the health factors of bison meat. A lot of people are pushing for bison meat now because it's a lot more healthier than beef. It has um, it's low in cholesterol and fat and very high in protein. It's actually called one of the superfoods. So people that have heart problems and stuff like that, the doctors always recommend to find a bison ranch and you know purchase their bison meat. So um, the odds of it going out of business for you know bison, I don't see really because it's such a healthy uh, meat. Yeah. All right, thank you for that, and uh, thanks for being on. Uh, it was it was real good to talk to y'all, and uh, I think everyone learned something. And I'd like to thank all our listeners for uh, listening to Living Appalachia. Thank you so much. If I can just throw in a last tidbit of information, a lot of people don't know, is that in May of 2016, the president at the time had named the bison the national mammal. That is really neat. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great day.